Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to Season 4 of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season, we're exploring the theme of courage, from the traditional definition to the new and unexpected ways that courage shows up in our own lives. Today's interview is with Christopher Voss, a former FBI hostage negotiator who translated those tactics into modern-day negotiation training. He's also the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference. Negotiations are a challenging part of our daily lives, from salary talks and job offers to client projects and even within our own families. But Chris shares some incredible tactics you haven't heard a hundred times already. We'll discuss why yes is actually bad, the three types of negotiators, how to get what you want by exploring strategies other than splitting the difference, and so much more. And now, this is The Females. Well, hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Lauren. My pleasure. I'm happy to be on. Well, let's start by having you briefly describe what you do, since your job is anything but traditional, and where did your interest in negotiation and even the FBI come from? Well, I used to be an FBI hostage negotiator. Now, these days, I teach and coach hostage negotiation ideas into business and personal negotiations, so I'm an everyday guy now. (laughs) Yeah, compared to what you were before, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the mad, the mad, the bad, and the sad in our daily lives. How about that? Yeah, exactly. And where did your interest for the FBI come from? I was, well, I was in law enforcement and I got encouraged to look at federal law enforcement by my father. And when I found out that the feds traveled all over the world, I thought, hmm, I'd be more than happy to let somebody pay me go over the world. Right. So I was, I guess I've always been an adventurous guy. Speaking of adventurous, very adventurous of you to come on a podcast called The Females. You're our very first male guest. So now you have that honor as well, which is I really- dig that. I think that's awesome. I am thoroughly honored by that. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. And just for the listeners, I thought it would be fun to kind of share how you and I met because we actually met at the TED Women Conference last year. So clearly you're used to being in a room full of women. We were both presenters for their Women in Leadership Workshop. And all I remember is, um, so that was on like a, a Saturday or something like that. And that Friday, everybody was buzzing about the FBI hostage negotiator who's going to be teaching a workshop. It was like, everyone's talking about this. And so I was super excited to sit in on your workshop. And, you know, especially in my line of work, I feel like 
I get asked about negotiation. We talk about negotiation a lot. And what I was super impressed by was that all of the things that I learned by taking your workshop for negotiation skills, they were things I never heard of before. Obviously, you're coming at it from, you know, hostage negotiation skills. But I just thought that was really fun that you and I met at a women's conference. Now you're on a women's podcast. And it's all stuff I haven't heard before, which means the listeners have not heard this before. So super cool of that origin story with us. So let's talk about your negotiation tips and strategies. And how is negotiation different from emotional persuasion and just trying to get people to say yes? Because I feel like that's usually what we're all taught is like, you know, split the difference, you know, get them to say yes, compromise as part of it, and then go on your way. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, and so yes is a bad word. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's so many false yeses out there. You know, you're actually, you're a lot better off by getting away from the yes dynamic entirely. Now, I wouldn't say get away from the no dynamic because we use no all the time, but in a really counterintuitive way. I mean, like instead of saying, you agree, I'll say, do you disagree? Instead of saying, have you got a few minutes to talk? I'll say, is now a bad time to talk? Mm-hmm. I mean, we found out that, you know, among the emotional intelligence rules, yes makes people feel uneasy. You always worry about what you're letting yourself in for if you say yes to me. Even if I say, is today Wednesday? You're going to stop and think like, what am I letting myself <laughs> in for if I say yes to that? Right, right. Maybe they're going to ask me to do something because it's Wednesday and I don't want exactly. to. Yeah. As crazy as it is, human beings, you know, our emotional intelligence wiring, when we say no, we feel safe. We feel like we've protected ourselves. And consequently, when you feel safe and protected, you're actually a lot more willing to listen and you think things through better. So we use no all the time. I mean, to start with. Mm-hmm. So we're getting to yes. We don't bother with yes. My company, we used to say yes is nothing without how. And now we actually say yes is nothing and how is everything. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And and what, I mean, are there some core items that make someone a good negotiator, especially, you know, if we can, you know, pull any of this back to women specifically? I mean, what makes someone good at negotiation versus someone who just isn't that good? <laughs> now, well, we all have some core items. I mean, everybody's sort of born with a few of the core items and you need to get complementary items to enhance your strengths. Like, you're either born being naturally assertive or you're born being naturally relationship oriented or you're born being very analytical. And you need each one of those pieces to get stuff done, to create collaboration, to focus on long term relationships. I mean, you got to be assertive because otherwise, how's the other side going to know what's good for you if you don't tell them? Right. You got to focus on relationships because why should they be involved with you in the long run? You got to be able to think things through in order to minimize the stupid things you do. Yeah. So you, you need all those elements. Right. I think that we get a lot of thoughts. We see women picking up the style of negotiation that we teach this format, you know, which is just emotional intelligence negotiation. We see women picking it up faster than men, you know, and the reasons for that are probably multiple. And I don't know if they're nature or nurture, probably mostly nurture. Mm-hmm. But, you know, women have a tendency to pick this up faster than men do once once they once they begin to tumble to it. Well, we will take it because I feel like oftentimes it feels like as a woman, it's like you're not assertive enough. You're not this enough. So it's it's great to hear that 
the thing that we definitely have, which is emotional intelligence and empathy are really good tools for negotiation. In your book, which is called Never Split the Difference, which is terrific. Everyone should definitely go get this. I'll put it in the show notes as well. You discuss the negotiation power of the open-ended question, which is what we also practice in your workshop that I took with you. Why are open-ended questions good in negotiations? And can you give us an example of, of it in action or a story or anything like that? Let's focus some way down too, because there are a lot of things that people think of as open-ended questions. So what we really like to focus on are, are what and how questions and asked deferentially because with deference, you can approach anybody mm-hmm. and there's, there's great power in deference. We really want to mostly focus on what and how questions and asked in a collaborative way, but, but almost like forces empathy. Like my son's my director of operations. And one of our favorite how questions is when somebody is giving you a really difficult task to say, how am I supposed to do that? And and say it like that. I mean, not accusatory, but in like you're actually asking for help. And that question forces the other side to take a look at your position and forces empathy coming from them. They have to look at you. They have to at least stop and think about what your position is which is really the essence for any, for great collaboration. Anyway, you got to take the other person into account. Sometimes you have to make the other person take you into account so that you can make a great deal. And and that's one of what others would call an open-ended question, but it's very specifically tailored to create a thought in the other side's head. Mm -hmm. So if you were in a negotiation, you were asking for more money, you know, you wanted a higher salary, and you're the one asking, how would you get an open-ended question if you're the one who's also making the request? Well, it might be, how do you want me to succeed if I'm not paid enough? Right. Okay. That's interesting. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's then, then you start thinking about sequencing and you make what you want as a stepping stone for them to what they want. So you want to get paid more. They want you to succeed. You know, how am I supposed to succeed if I'm not adequately paid? You know, then that that puts it back on them and then it forces collaboration. Well, and this brings up another point that you talk about in your book, which is mirroring. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, which would be a great tool to use in especially a salary negotiation. Yeah, well, mirroring is a ridiculously simple skill. It's just basically repeating the last three words of what someone has just said. And so it's one to three words, three-ish, repeating them word for word. Now, this is a great way to keep the other side talking and to get them to expand, get you to help to completely understand really where they're coming from. It's deferential. It's invisible. People are shocked because it sounds so simple that the other side is going to notice it. But in point of fact, people find it very encouraging. And and it's a great way to keep the other side talking and get them to completely flesh out where they're coming from without you saying yes or no in any way, shape, or form without you taking a position. It's a great information gathering tool. Mm -hmm. And then as you gather more information, you get to keep asking questions and get just more and more information, right? Right. You know, I mean, some people refer to negotiation as the art of letting the other side have your way. Well, you got to get them talking so that they can talk themselves into what's good for you, but what's good for both of you. Mm-hmm. And I would love, just because I love the story in the book with the bank robber, how you were able to use mirroring. And I just think it would be really fun if you could share that with the audience because, you know, most of us haven't come in contact with someone who's been part of a bank robbery negotiation. Well, yeah, mirroring is this great skill when you're caught completely off guard. And 
the bank robber said something to me that just caught me completely off guard. He was trying to keep himself anonymous. He was a real control freak negotiator. He was actually, he exhibited all the great characteristics of a powerful negotiator at the table. And a powerful negotiator at the table will make themselves seem powerless. They'll always talk about the people that are not there that have all sorts of influence. And this guy was the mastermind behind the bank robbery. And he kept saying, like, the other guys in here are more dangerous than I am. You know, I'm scared of what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. Oh, my God, one of them's coming now. I got to get off the phone. I mean, he just practiced it to this great degree. And we slowly caught on. We found his van. And because he wouldn't admit to who he was, I was supposed to brace him with his name and the fact that we found a van. And, you know, I said, hey, you know, we've got this. We've got a van out here. We found all the drivers, the owners of all the vehicles, except this one. And it caught him off guard. And he said, well, you know, you chased my driver away. And I was shocked by that. I had no idea what he said. I no no idea of a driver. And I said, we chased your driver away? He said, yeah. When he saw the police, he cut and run. I said, he cut and run? He said, yeah. You know, we only had one vehicle. And every time I mirrored him, he gave me more information. Involuntarily, a control fruit guy who was trying his best to hold back information. And that information about us chasing his driver away ended up being a spontaneous admission that got his getaway driver convicted because his getaway driver had gotten away and we had no evidence whatsoever that the guy was ever at the scene except a spontaneous admission. Wow. That's just a really good example of Miriam, but also I picturing this being used in, you know, negotiations at work and working with clients or, you know, two people are trying to hold their cards close to their chest. And by mirroring, you could get them to admit more without it coming from the angle of being, you know, nosy or like, you know, asking them 20 questions and wearing them out that way. That's exactly what it does. And they feel in control the whole time, which is the crazy thing. And you got them chattering away, you know, like, uh, like a talk show host. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Let's take a quick break from the show to chat about Majuri. Majuri, spelled M-E-J-U-R-I, is the jewelry company that has finally figured out what no one else in the jewelry business has been able to wrap their heads around. It's that we don't need a special occasion or a gift from someone else when we want a new piece of high-quality jewelry. I recently treated myself to the satellite necklace in gold vermeil and white sapphires. I love it because it's dainty without being plain, just my style. It's perfect to wear from work or to a night event, which is key for those sometimes hectic, read always hectic, schedules. Majuri makes handcrafted fine jewelry for your everyday because you should be able to buy fine jewelry and not need Valentine's Day or some other special occasion as a reason. Their diamonds open ring is another favorite of mine and can be worn as a stackable ring or on its own. It's the perfect example of a piece of jewelry that says, look what I bought myself instead of look what someone else bought me. Also, I love to kind of treat myself after a big work event or work accomplishment, and Majuri is perfect for that. Head off to Majuri.com to check out their collection of timeless, understated, and fun statement pieces. Another cool thing about Majuri, rather than charging 8 to 10 times the actual production cost like traditional luxury brands do, Majuri instead nurtures direct relationships with manufacturers to bring high-quality craftsmanship directly to you without those ridiculous markups. Or you can just treat yourself right now, because just for our listeners, when you go to majuri.com females, F-E-M-A-I-L-S, 
you'll get free shipping on orders over $100. That's Marjuri.com slash females. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash females. Treat yourself to something nice today. Okay, now let's get back to the show. Well, let's discuss the three types of negotiators and how we can determine which type we are. So the first one is the analyst. Yeah, the, the, the analyst is sort of in the accommodator. The analyst is a deep thinker. The analyst sees conflict as a non-productive waste of time. Analysts, they love solving problems on their own. They're deep thinkers that can usually solve problems really, really fast. And so they love, they love complicated ideas. Like if you've been anywhere where they taught decision trees, like analysts love decision trees with all sorts of possibilities and all sorts of factors in it. They just love to think in, in great detail. Mm-hmm. They tend to seem distant, and they're not, but they play things so close to the vest that they have a tendency to seem very distant. They're about a, about a third of the planet are, are natural-born analysts. Interesting. And assertive, which sounds like the, the bank robber guy you said was assertive. Huh. <laughs> yeah, the assertive is a direct and honest. There's never any doubt in your mind where an assertive is coming from because they pride themselves on being direct and honest and they pride themselves on making sure you understand them. Consequently, once they feel understood, they, they are ridiculously collaborative once they feel they've gotten their point across. Mm-hmm. And the third one is the accommodator. And you said everybody is, you know, the world is pretty much a third and a third and a third of these. We've got a, a fair amount of data to support that in the world pretty much splits up evenly into thirds. Certain populations in a given moment will be skewed a little bit more in one direction than the other. If you were to bet, you'd be betting pretty accurately that two out of three people are not your type. Wow. And uh, so what's the characteristics of the accommodator? You know, they're the relationship-oriented person. There was, you know, and all these are from the caveman days. You know, the fight, flight, make friends. The three responses to coping with conflict. Either you ran from it, you fought back on it, or you made friends with it. And that's the accommodator. The accommodator is naturally relationship-focused person. They're, they're, the relationship is a primary commodity, the primary currency, the primary reason for being for the accommodator. And is it valuable to try to like diagnose what type of a negotiator type the other person is and work backwards from there? Or... Is it better to just, you know, ask open-ended questions, use mirroring? Like, I guess, what's a good approach to negotiate with these people? Well, if you're, it comes off most often at impasse. Like, if you feel that for whatever reason we're just not connecting, I'm saying stuff, they're misinterpreting me, more than likely it's going to be a result of a type mismatch. It helps to have it right off the bat. I mean, the definition of empathy is really seeing things from the other person's perspective. So if you're really focused on the other side's perspective as your primary purpose, type problems tend to fall away because you're focused on them and where they're coming from. But if you run into a, an impasse, it's probably going to be a type mismatch. Mm-hmm. When you're coaching people, do you see one of the biggest challenges is that they need to start looking at negotiation constantly from the other person's point of view versus, because I do think a lot of us are taught to think about, you know, what do we want? Protecting our information. And, you know, it's very me, me, me oriented. Understanding what they want is a path to getting what you want. Right. Is the, is the most effective path. I mean, so, you know, it's, in a, it's a little more detailed on the Covey advice, guidance from way back. Seek first to understand and then be understood 
it's seek first to demonstrate understanding so you can be understood. Like it's the fastest path to getting your way is actually getting a full handle on where the other side's coming from. Mm, which uh, today's society is not always great at listening or thinking about <laughs> where the other side is coming from. So it is probably more challenging. I think also, I mean, as a woman, I think about, you know, the fact that people maybe size us up right away in a negotiation or, you know, when it comes to how we can influence somebody who maybe thinks we are like they've already sized us up and decided like, oh, her company's small. We have the upper hand. Like, we'll just take what we want. I mean, and I guess this is advice isn't necessarily for women, but just for anyone who how can you get people to perceive you in the way that you want to be perceived, especially during negotiations? Yeah, well, I mean, you want to be perceived as deferential because they're going to drop their guard. So, you know, I want people to perceive me as being understanding and deferential because I want to get through them. I want to begin to I want to build my influence. You don't you don't build your influence with the person by beating them up or by making them afraid of you or by making them feel like you can force them into stuff. I mean, we don't even talk about leverage anymore. We talk about influence. How do I influence them? effectively over the long term. You know, the most influential people are the are the Oprah Winfrey's and the Warren Buffett's. You know, the people that are not busy throwing their weight around, but in a in the long term, they're the most successful. They're the most people want to collaborate with them. People want to make deals with them. And you know, I I love Oprah as a, as an example because Oprah's no pushover. Mm -hmm. You know, but you don't think of her as a tough guy. But Oprah may be as tough as anybody out there because there aren't any stories of anybody rolling over over Oprah. <laughs> no. But you don't think of her as a tough guy, yet she has to be. So what is it? It's her application of understanding and emotional intelligence and unrelenting regard. And she gets her way. I think she's a phenomenal model for one of the best negotiators on the planet. But you don't think of her as a negotiator. Right. Also in your book, you talked a lot about when you are going into negotiations or, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying like a salary negotiation, maybe it's even like a important meeting. Your tone of voice is also really important. So some people, they'll change their tone of voice to sound, you know, louder. So they're the loudest person in the room, but that's not actually what you want, right? No. Well, you know, a lot of, you know, it's uh, <laughs> loudest person in the room is the most insecure person in the room. The most important person in the room tends to be the quietest person in the room. Tone of voice, people ignore it so much. And, and I'll, I'll give you a quick example, you know, because we teach people that to get out in front of negatives and call them out even before they exist. And I'll tell somebody in advance that you can't plan a negative by calling it out. You can only plan it by denying it. Intellectually, people say, okay, that's fine. And then I'll say, all right. So now let's actively do it. And they'll say, well, no, I can't call it out in advance. I may plant it. Now, my response, you could be, so when I told you before that calling it out in advance didn't plan it, you thought I was wrong. Now, my tone of voice tells you when I say that, that I think you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. But if I say the same words and change my tonality at the end, I'll say, so when I told you before that calling out a negative doesn't plan it. You thought I was wrong? Now, same words, but the second one lands. And you'll contemplate it by that tiny little tweak in my tonality. And I know that I can get past your defenses with that tonality and drop. It's like inception. I can drop that thought in your head in a very non-threatening way 
and then it'll grow. And if I were to tell you, I'm going to give you a masterclass on tonality, you'd say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Right. Well, it almost but sounds... But if I taught it to you, you'd be like, ooh, now I got a stealth weapon. The only thing I would say about that is that there's a, a small part of it where it could sound like upspeak too, which is not what you want to do. Because upspeak is, you know, and women, we are told that we do a lot of upspeak and kind of accused of that. So we end a lot of things with a question instead of being matter of fact with it. But it kind of sounds like your advice is to sometimes have a little bit of a question at the end. Well, in its context, too. I mean, I think a lot of bad advice that women are getting is just strictly context. And very few techniques, if you will, approaches are bad on their face. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything, but I can give you bad context. Right. That's important to remember. Well, since this is a a season focused on courage, I I think just negotiation in general definitely takes courage. But there can be a lot of negative emotions around that, especially if you've tried to negotiate in the past and it has not gone well and that's kind of stuck with you. So fear is definitely something that could be part of someone's relationship with negotiation. How can we diffuse these emotions. Yeah. And, and it's absolutely a part of courage, right? I mean, and, and courage isn't the absence of fear. You know, courage is feeling it and doing it anyway. I mean, I'm scared of this stuff all the time. We're wired to be fearful. The, the neuroscience actually backs that up. Regardless of our gender or ethnicity, we're wired to be fearful because it was what was required to keep us alive when we were actually being chased by saber-toothed tigers. So being aware that to start with, like you shouldn't beat yourself up because you're fearful. You're wired to be fearful to start with. Now, the silly thing is calling it out is the most effective way to diffuse it. And that I don't want to be scared to say, look, I am scared. And I, I will, the self-taught, there's a neuroscience experiment that backs it up. The mere identification of a negative diffuses it. And I'll find myself saying like, yeah, I'm scared. I'm, I am scared. I am scared. And then I'm like, screw this. I'm not scared. <laughs> because every time I called it out, it diffused it. Right. And it, it's like it, it wore it away a little bit, not denying it, calling it out. And there's a neuroscience experiment that actually proves that this works. So facing the fear and recognizing it is the greatest way to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I, I like the the just yelling screw it <laughs> in the middle of that. That's great. And also I find that for some people too, sometimes naming your fear. So it actually feels like it's a separate, you know, so when you yell at it or when you talk to it, it's like talking to a separate entity. I've heard advice around that, that it's sometimes helpful. Let's take a quick break so I can tell you about Acuity the scheduling assistant that works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar and take hours of work off your plate. You'll probably agree with me that one of the most annoying and inefficient things at work is going back and forth in an email, asking someone, what time works for you? And then they say, well, what time works for you? For hours on end, just to reschedule the call and start the process all over again. With Acuity, you'll be freed from the dreaded task because clients can quickly view your real-time availability and self-book their own appointments, reschedule with a click, and even pay online. With a tool like Acuity helping, you can save time, book more clients, and get paid faster because you'll be automating some of the most annoying business day-to-day activities with just a few clicks. When I started using Acuity, I was amazed at how simple it was to get set up, 
And also, it has truly been a godsend. I have saved so much time not having to go back and forth to ask people when they're available, what's their time zone, they reschedule. So I highly, highly recommend this. This is something that you have to look into. Because another thing that I love about Acuity is that it allows you to collect everything you need to know about a client before the actual call by including intake forms when scheduling. When you do that and you have all the client's information, one, it makes it really simple to get on that call, but it's all organized and in one neat and tidy place that you can reference whenever you need it. So save yourself from the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. For a limited time only, you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free. No credit card required. All you have to do is go to acuityscheduling.com females. Acuity is A-C-U-I-T-Y scheduling.com slash females, F-E-M-A-I-L-S. All right, now let's get back to the show. So your book is called Never Split the Difference in a Negotiation, but I feel like the advice everyone's given is to split the difference and find a compromise. So why is compromise actually bad for negotiations? Well, there's two, there's two big problems with splitting the difference. First of all, the person that offers to meet you in the middle is usually a poor judge of distance. <laughs> yeah, right. So this whole split the difference is often a con. I'll just ask for more than what I want. I'll offer to split the difference. And we'll end up where I wanted to be all along, and I will have conned you. There's a lot of cutthroats out there that play that game. Now, let's pretend like you're not trying to play the game. Let's pretend that in good conscience and with integrity, you're trying to be fair. Now, unfortunately, wired by as humans, and Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for prospect theory, a loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. What does that mean? What that means is if you and I offer to split the difference and I got to give in five to meet you halfway, the problem is I'm going to feel like I gave you 10. And now I'm going to be dissatisfied and unhappy with this. And the only way I can feel whole is to hit you for the 10. Mm -hmm. Now, if I hit you for 10, you're going to feel like you got hit for 20. And that starts this whole downward spiral where neither one of us are ever going to be happy. And if we're never happy, We're not going to want to do business with each other. Or if there's a problem, our reaction is going to be like, well, the heck with you. It's just too bad because I am not happy anyway. And it's about time that you shared some of my pain. Right. So we can't legitimately split the difference because we're humans. It's a guaranteed downward spiral. And I love how the people in negotiation, that compromises the art of great negotiation. All right. Well, what about your personal relationships? What about your marriage? Is it your determination that your negotiation rules of both sides need to be a little uh, unhappy for it to be a great deal? Is that the definition for a great marriage? Definitely not. Right. So this begins to call into question this whole idea of compromise. Now, now what a lot of people overlook and never split the difference, if I'm going to live by that, I have to be willing to accept your point of view in its entirety. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite negotiations were exactly that, where in the midst of a negotiation, being open to the best outcome, somebody said, hey, wait a minute, you actually have a better idea than I do. My only dilemma here is my ego. Let me get my ego out of the way and then we'll both be better off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a story about this? I'm sure you do. So I'd love to hear, like, especially... not with like salary negotiation, but especially within business, because I'm thinking a lot of this is like, 
I want to get them to do it my way, but you know, I don't want to split the difference. And I feel like this happens all the time at work. I got compromise after compromise where the compromise destroyed everybody. Yeah. Like the deal just falls apart kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Because nobody was happy and the resentment never went away. And then companies are lost over, over compromise, over splitting the difference. You know, my, my favorite one actually was in a personal negotiation. It was a negotiation between a husband and wife over a Christmas tree. Husband wanted <laughs> an artificial tree. The wife wanted a real one. Now, the husband is telling me this story, and the husband is the one who's using our techniques. So he's going to use one of our techniques to try to dig into the motivation for his wife and diffuse it. She won't He listen to any of his reasoning on the, on the artificial tree. She's adamant she wants a real tree. And finally says to her, it seems like he had real trees growing up because he's thinking this is deep, right? So she says, yeah. And uh, my memories that are triggered by the smell of a real tree of me and my brothers and sisters around a tree at the holidays and the love that we felt for each other and how close our family was. And I want those same memories for our children. Guess what kind of tree they got? (laughs) (laughs) A real tree. He realized she was right. She identified a much larger, higher principle that meant so much more that actually got him to his goal, which was creating great family memories. But since he's being practical, he didn't see that. Right. And he came completely to her. He didn't split the difference. He accepted her solution a thousand percent. Mm -hmm. And that's that, you know, that's the never split the difference. It's like, hey, you know, you may be right. I may need to listen to you. Right, right. Well, this goes back to to listening, which we mentioned in the beginning. I'm kind of curious, too, because when we were talking about this and you were mentioning, you know, a lot of people will do the thing where, you know, they'll start high and then you end up where they wanted, you know, what they wanted from the get go. So it's kind of this game that they're playing with you. And I feel like this happens a lot, especially for, you know, freelancers or consultants, people who are working on project based, which is, you know, I want $100 for this project. So I'm going to ask for 150 and I'll settle for a hundred. And I feel like that is a very like normal way to try to get to your number. What should they do? Like, what are some of the tactics that they should do actually instead? Well, you know, it's a normal way for the mediocre players to get to their number. Mm -hmm. And by and large, the very best and not a hundred percent, only about 90% of the very best do not do that nonsense at all because they want a great deal And the people who, whether or not they put food on the table depends upon each and every deal. Like, you know, we negotiate, you know, we kill what we eat, period. I'm not supported by university anymore. We're complete consultant. Right. And if I come in too high too soon, it just, the other side just pulls away and I miss out on a deal that I should have made, or they had something that was really valuable to me. And I, and I scared them off by coming in with a number that was too high too soon. Or conversely, people come at me with a, a low numbers all the time. I just stop talking to them. Right. You know, so, you know, they, they do the extreme anchor at the other end. Extreme anchors make deals go away that you should have otherwise have made. And that's completely counter to what the academics will tell you. Yeah. So we don't, you know, we don't, we don't ask for too much to start with because the other side, first of all, the other side is likely to move on. And secondly, it's going to trigger resentment. And third, we're not going to get to the essence of what's going to make a great deal anyway, which is going to be all the surrounding terms. Right. We have a tendency to pay people because I want superior performance. And I'm only going to get superior performance 
if you feel well compensated. Now, I've still got to go after what superior performance looked like, but you are sure not going to over deliver for me if you feel that I cut your throat on the price. A hundred percent. Definitely. So when you are negotiating, you know, you, you said you're a full-time consultant, where do you start with? You don't start with a number. Do you start with all the surrounding, you know, what they're going to get instead? Yeah. Well, we start talking about what's going to make a great deal. Right. I mean, what are you really after here? You know, what are you being driven by? I mean, what problems are you actually wrestling with? Mm -hmm. And what do I have that can adapt to those problems that'll work best for you? Mm -hmm. So we kind of, you know, uh, you know, what does great success look like? And then let's see if we can if we can work backwards from there, because there's a pretty good chance that, you know, there I have better stuff than you imagine and vice versa. Right. And it's more than just the number or you need to almost get them to not focus on the number. Yeah. Well, when, when, if we're focused on a number, we're, we're going to miss out on better opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to be well paid and I sure am going to be well paid, too. If I don't over deliver on value, then it doesn't matter what I charge you. It's not going to be there for you. I mean, the only other thing I can think of that's really helpful with this freelancer scenario we're talking about is it feels like sometimes, you know, people will talk to you about making a deal forever and ever and ever. You know, it's like six months goes by and you're still chatting with them. How do you get someone to actually sign on the dotted line and say, "Okay, we've got a deal. I'm going to start working for you. All right, yeah. Um, well, you, you just got into another area that's bigger than you realize. It's it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Yeah. So what we diagnose up front here is because at least 20% of every opportunity, period, is a fake opportunity. People are either looking for free consulting or they're looking for comparative pricing, but they're not going to use you. And more than likely, they want to... S- drain as much knowledge from you as they possibly can. And then they're going to move on. Now, a lot of people are dr- looking to drain knowledge from you and they don't know that that's what they're doing. We see this real commonly. It's a, it's a fake opportunity. The other side doesn't know they're never going to use you, but they want to know how to do what you do. Right. And suddenly when you tell them, they're like, ah, well, you know, I guess I don't need you anymore. And they move on. Right. It happens also when people are interviewing for jobs, you know, companies will say, oh, we need you to, you know, do this case study or this project. And then, of course, they're like, you know, thanks for all your ideas. We don't need to hire you, though. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of real strong tells, if you will, uh, profiles where we look for this right up front. But we, you know, we start asking right away, like, you know, what, you know, what is it? What is it about us that? Or what is it about me that makes me better than the other people around? Mm-hmm. And if they don't give you a straight answer to that, the deal is probably not there. Yeah. Well, that's very helpful. And your advice is very tactical. And I think that's really important for people because at the end of the day, they're on the phone and they have to respond somehow. So that's very actionable advice. So I appreciate that. So our last question before we move into the rapid fire questions is, what was the last courageous act that you made or did? And what was the result or impact of that? Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a big one. I know. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm putting more and more faith into the people on my team and standing back a lot more and letting them screw up. Mm-hmm. I've always been, a, you know, if, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And I'm letting a lot more of that stuff go and letting it be. I got a book agent and he's starting to represent me in a lot of other ways. 
And I'm, you know, normally I'd want to handle it myself and I'd want him to step off to the side. And recently I've been saying like, look, man, I'm, I'm willing to be guided by your gut instincts on this. Yeah. I think being guided by gut instincts, whether your own or someone else's is definitely courageous. Okay. So let's move into rapid fire. These are definitely less intense than the question about courage. Okay. So on an airplane, you're most likely to work. <laughs> work. <laughs> I'm wondering when someone's going to be like, I'm the chatter. I'm the person who talks on the airplane. But at this point, I don't even know if anybody wants to admit that. Before you get on stage to talk, you always? Well, like in the last few seconds, I'm just trying to clear my head. Mm -hmm. In a couple of hours leading up to it. So I talk to the whatever the group is, whatever the representatives are, try to get a feel for what's really going to resonate when I step up on stage. And so if I've absorbed that stuff, maybe the last 15 or 20 minutes, I just need dead silence. I want nobody to talk to me. Mm -hmm. A dream client, either a person or a company would be? You know, people that just have fun learning. Mm -hmm. We're we're after the top 1%. You got to have fun and you got to want to learn and you got to be delighted by learning new stuff. Or you tell somebody something new like, and they say, oh, wow, you know, I already knew that. Or here's how I already knew that. Or somebody says like, no kidding. <laughs> and I like the no kidding types. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of them out there. So <laughs> you have your hands full. So I was going to ask you, looking back, what would you tell your younger self? But I, I'd like to change it to, you know, looking back, what do you miss about the FBI? And what do you love about your current job that's very different than the FBI? Wow. Well, I ran my time. You know, I'm a gratitude. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not grieving over the loss of my career. I'm grateful to have had it. And so when you're gratitude, you don't miss it. There is no loss. It was a beautiful, wonderful, delightful time. And there's no nostalgia for it. I got nothing but gratitude for everything that I went through. So what we're doing now, I mean, we're cutting edge stuff. I mean, we're helping people have massive impacts on every aspect of their life. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't get an email from somebody somewhere that was like, here's the difference I made in my life, whether it's personal or professional, that I learned from your book. And that just, that blows me away. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's so cool too, that you were able to take hostage negotiation tactics and apply them to you know, most people are not going to be in a hostage situation, but most people are going to be in a situation where they need to negotiate for, for what they want and for themselves. So it's great that you were able to transfer that, that skill set. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell the listeners where they can find you and find additional resources on negotiation as well. The gateway to everything we have is our newsletter. And it comes out once a week. It's complimentary. It's short and sweet. You don't have you know, it, it, you don't get decision fatigue trying to decide what to <laughs> yeah. read. Yeah. People love it as a supplement to the book because the, the one piece that's in every newsletter, and there's only one, it's never more than 800 words. Um, it's a short, sweet, actionable read. And so the best way to subscribe to the newsletter, we got a text to sign up function. The number you text to is 22828, and it's 22828. And you send the message, FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space and make it two words. It's got to be one word, lowercase. Shoot that out to that number, 22828. You get a response back asking for your email. And that is, it's a gateway to the website. We got a lot of free stuff out there. There's tons of stuff on a website. 
And there's, it's just a gateway to everything. There's stuff we charge for too. The newsletter is a gateway to everything. Amazing. Well, thank you again. We'll put all of that information in the show notes. And thank you again for sharing your tactics for negotiation. Really appreciate it. And for being the first male on the female. So (laughs) that's great. I am honored. (laughs) Thank you so much. Awesome. Recently, I was feeling really sluggish and drained of energy at work. Once I hit three o'clock, I felt drained of all my energy. And I realized that this drain was probably due to my quick fix sugar fix that I used to satisfy my mid-afternoon lulls. I really needed to change up my work diet and increase my energy. That's when I found Saqqara. Saqqara makes organic, ready-to-eat meals with nutritious and plant-based ingredients that are designed to help you tap into your best self. Saqqara is a dream for me. Aside from being delicious, I highly recommend the Saqqara Spicy Chard Abundance Bowl. All Saqqara meals are designed to promote healthy digestion and increase energy. Another thing I love about Saqqara is that they promote a lifestyle, not a diet. So this isn't ready-to-eat meals that also ask you to give up your favorite things like your morning coffee. With Saqqara, you can have breakfast, lunch, dinner, healthy supplements, and even teas delivered to your door ready to eat. There's no complicated meal kit to put together. It's all healthy and ready to go. Saqqara also gives you a welcome kit to explain what you're eating and drinking and when. They don't just give you healthy food. They share the science that backs up why you're feeling better. And I find that that additional awareness is really important to really shifting your mindset from grabbing that quick lunch fix while you're answering emails versus disconnecting to really enjoy a healthy lunch for 30 minutes or however long you need. It doesn't even stop there. Sakara also offers support from their certified health coaches to help you stay on track with your nutrition goals. I love Sakara, and that's why I'm really excited to tell you guys about right now. They're offering our listeners $60 off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash females. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash females to get $60 off your first order. One last time, it's sakara.com slash females. All right, everyone, it's time for our favorite part of the episode, Tough Questions, where Kayleen and I bring each other one tough question to answer honestly. And we also like to usually share something behind the scenes that's happening to either us or at Career Contessa. All right, Kayleen, let's start with you. What's your behind the scenes? I wanted to draw you in for this. Okay. (laughs) Because this is something that um, it just keeps coming up in different things, whether it's like email, um, social media comments just like internet forums it's being nice on the internet yeah and I know everyone's like familiar with this a lot of people use the internet as this kind of like um abyss where they can drop in like a mean comment or a mean email and relax into this feeling that like all right it's out um that another human doesn't actually get that message on the other side and it could like really damage their day so yeah this is something and I know maybe it's taking it too personally or something but sometimes we get a lot of really constructive feedback we read everything like every instagram message that comes in every email and a lot of it is very constructive usually but then some of them are just like downright mean and we'll usually like kind of take a moment to pause and be like well should we consider this like is this a good point or is it just mean i don't and i don't know if this is like been happening more recently or we've we're just starting to notice it more, but it does feel like, you know, constructive criticism. Awesome. We love it. I would say 99% of the stuff we Mm -hmm. get is like that. 
And I feel bad because we're talking about the 1%, but the 1% we get is really mean. And we are real people on the other end and we read it. Like one lady emailed me the other day and it was not nice. And it was like <laughs> something about how she didn't have access to something, an online course. And I wrote her back and I was like, oh, did you click on this thing? And she was like, no, I never, sorry. I, I like, it's not like me to write like a ranting email. I never saw that. And not that she needed to apologize, but there was nothing on the other end of hers being like, hey, I probably reacted too quickly to that and you didn't deserve it because the email was like pretty mean. And um, (laughs) and honestly, it was just because she didn't click on this one thing. And so I do feel like there's nothing wrong, too, if you write like a ranting email or something like that and you start a dialogue with us. And we get to a place where we're having this like back and forth. Also, sometimes we have responded and Mm -hmm. asked people like, oh, well, what, you know, can you elaborate on this? Or what do you think about this and that? And there isn't a back and forth either sometimes. So one, I would like people to be like nice about it because I do think being nice only makes it easier to have these back and forths. But two, it's like, I genuinely want to know like what what didn't work or, Mm -hmm. you know, what could we do better? You know, let us hear your two cents. And that also upsets me when it's like, there was a mean email and there's nothing to go back and forth Mm -hmm. on. So it's like, you you truly didn't want to, this isn't going to be constructive in any way because you're done (laughs) too. We're just making like one-off mean comments. Like I feel like this happens a lot on like celebrity Instagrams or something. People will write the meanest stuff and it's like that person could see that. And would you like, would you be comfortable being face to face knowing they saw that and knowing you wrote it? Like, I just think it's, you know, the if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it. Well, or... sometimes, too, I've noticed, like, on some celebrity stuff, like, the comments become a fight between other people. Like, yeah. two people on that celebrity's Instagram are having a fight. And it's like, I mean, I feel bad for the celebrity because it's like your your profile or your stuff is starting this, like, mean back and forth, yeah. too. And I get it. It's like, it's that love-hate relationship with the internet. Like, you love it for all these these reasons but you hate it because it has made it so so easy to like be mean without the face you know so in that Gia Tolentino book Trick Mirror there's this essay about the internet and kind of like the evolution of the internet because we basically grew up with it and there's this idea I'm going to totally butcher this but it's about in your normal life like you have your forward-facing self whether it's you know who you are at work who you are like at a coffee shop. Yeah. But then you have this thing called, um, it's called backstage. And that's when you get home. Usually it's like when you're with your partner or your dog or whatever, like that's when you kind of shed your skin and can be yourself basically. And the idea is that the internet doesn't have a backstage. So people are just spewing this, like there's no break from it. So it's just interesting about the internet because it just kind of profiles the behavior and why it exists and why trolls exist, et cetera. I'm not saying we have trolls and I'm not saying we're celebrities, (laughs) but I'm saying like the next time you feel like you want to write an email that, you know, profiles a mistake or like it is a mistake. There's no malintent behind it. It's like just be kinder, I guess. <laughs> Basically, we're saying you've hurt our feelings. No, <laughs> uh, no I, I think it's a good general like public service announcement. Like remember real people and we do. We read everything. Some places might not. So maybe oftentimes you write stuff and you're like, oh, this is my vent. And it's yeah. like, it's good that I got off my chest. But just know like at least at Career Contessa, we do read everything. <laughs> okay, let's go into tough questions. So Kayleen, you just had your one year anniversary at Career Contessa. Congrats. What have been some of your main takeaways? Oh, gosh, I'm sounding like such a nerd right now. <laughs> but because before I came to Career Contessa, it was a couple years of like, 
going a little bit from like a, a couple jobs to jobs to freelance things to being like, I like the function of my work, but I didn't really like what I was doing or, you know, especially when you're writing about something, you're just kind of like, yeah, software, oh, you know, yeah. fulfillment software, whatever. <laughs> but it really is like super rewarding to every day feel like, because obviously women in careers is something I deal with on my own every day. So it's nice to be able to do something rewarding. Um, to be able to talk to different women to like navigate through like right now I'm pregnant and I'm navigating through the whole maternity stuff and so I'm just thinking about that like nonstop at the same time you're navigating it you can help other people too in a realistic way which I think is such a cool opportunity and not a lot of people have yeah I would also I know when you came to career contestant you had been working remote and so Mm. now it's like back with a team and I think it's interesting because you mentioned this before like you knew that that's what you were looking for. And it's kind of cool when you get to a place in your career where you're like, I know what kind of job I want and I know what type of work environment works for me. And like, you know, the pieces that make Mm -hmm. it all work for you. And then you go out and find the job that fits that, you know, like I remember in college when you're job searching, like you don't think about any of that stuff. Like I always tell people, I'm like, look, knowing what I knew now or what I know now, like I would have done my career way different, like early on. And it's partly you can't know what you don't know, but also there was no advice that was like, hey, before you pick a job, like consider certain things that you know are really important to you. And and like, you know, you have to take that all with a grain of salt because again, like if you haven't had a lot of jobs, maybe you wouldn't know that. But it's cool when you get to that place where you've had enough and you're like, this works for me, this doesn't. And you just get to be much more like decisive in those decisions, you know, where like versus second guessing or feeling like you just got to take anything because you just got to get started. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. And it's nice to be able to like reach that point of, I guess, contentment and happiness where you can give legitimate advice. Like I never feel like I'm BSing anyone because I'm like, it's not one thing you're going to do right. You're going to do like a thousand things wrong and you're going to take a lot of turns. But if you're paying attention to what did work and what didn't work, especially what didn't work, then hopefully you'll end up at a place that's really nice and comfortable. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Okay. So my question for you is because... This week, obviously, was the first time we heard a man's voice. Yeah, on the females. <laughs> <laughs> on the females. Was there any, like, main difference between what it was like to interview a, a woman versus a man? I would say that's a, that's a good question. Like, the actual interview and, and how, you know, the questions and his answers, I wouldn't say there was a difference between men and women with that. But what there is a difference was, and, and part of this has to do with the fact that Chris was an FBI hostage negotiator. Like <laughs> his advice on negotiation was totally different than anything I'd ever heard before. Again, not, you know, it could have been a female FBI hostage negotiator, but so I would say the biggest difference was just like his advice on a topic that, and what I really thought was interesting is that his advice on the topic relating to women kind of mentioned this in the interview is like women are often told sort of like, negotiate more like a man or like, Mm -hmm. you know, do this thing more like a man. And like, Chris is an expert on this. And, you know, he's had to negotiate in like much higher stakes situations than just your salary. And he's like, a lot of the qualities that are natural to women are exactly what you need to be a really good negotiator. Mm -hmm. And I think the more women can hear these messages, I think that's really important because it's tiring to kind of get the message of feeling like, hey, if you would just do this thing more like this guy or, you know, people like, you know, 
whatever. They like it when um, men are more likable at work. And that's, it's like, mm-hmm. sometimes you're like, where's the goodness? Can we just hear, <laughs> there was actually an interesting article the other day, a friend of mine shared it. And it was talking about kind of a similar topic where it was saying like, we need to stop telling women to lean in. We need to tell guys to like, I mean, it was a play on words. It's like lean out or in other words, like for men to be like, no, I'm going to embrace being more empathetic or I'm going to embrace like what these quote unquote feminine traits are or like communication styles are more often. Cause it's like, why are we constantly telling women to change? Like really we should tell men to change because this stuff is actually better for a workplace. And on season two, I interviewed this woman, Caroline Turner, and she talks about how there's like feminine and masculine communication styles and how everybody has both. It's just which ones like come out as more dominant and which ones you pull out more for like your own style. And I think that's a really good message to get out there. And I know as a woman, like I get tired of feeling that way too. Like I've got to like second guess this or make sure you're this, but not too much of that, you Mm -hmm. know? And I I hope that's a, like a trend that continues is like, like people like Chris and whether it's men or women saying it, but it's like these qualities that are, you know, maybe more naturally feminine qualities, but they're actually really good for negotiation, which is something everybody has to use. Right. And so, okay, how can we use more of that? And how can men listen to the, maybe an episode like the females like this one and then recognize like okay next time I'm in a negotiation I'm gonna do this more often I just think those messages like you can't hear them enough yeah you know so I wouldn't say there was a difference in like his style versus interviewing a woman but I would definitely say that his advice and and maybe that's something I definitely need to explore more often is finding men on topics who like wanted to speak about topics, but also recognizing like, you know, there's like, you know, the quote unquote male ally out there, you know, I'm not, because right. one time someone said this to me, they're like, oh, you're, you only give advice for women. I'm like, we tailor our content and our advice for women, but we're not anti-man. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a big difference between like that, you know, yeah. so you can't always drop kick people into that. So anyway, all good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that got really heavy. <laughs> so it's not like think like a man or think like a woman. It's maybe like think like an FBI yeah. hostage negotiator. Well, his whole thing. And like also that's what I'm saying. Like his advice was just so different than what you'd ever heard before about negotiations mm-hmm. because a lot of times you are told like meet in the middle. You know, you're trying to figure out what the other side wants. Like actually his like I went to this workshop that he did and his advice was very much like you shouldn't compromise at all because when pe- both people are compromising one per- they're everybody's losing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think most of us probably would find that hard because that would just be hard in a negotiation. But bottom line was, yeah, he's using tactics that the FBI is using to apply to businesses and it's working. (laughs) So (laughs) that works for me. (laughs) I'm willing to do that. I think negotiations though are, and he mentions this too, like the more you do them, the better you get at it. Cause like the first time you negotiate, whether it's a job offer or a salary, it's just like extremely uncomfortable. It's just, it's just, that's how it works anyway. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe um, and leave us a review. We absolutely love hearing from you all. We'll be back next Tuesday with Veronica Rupert. She is the author of the recently published book, Outspoken, Why Women's Voices Get Silenced and How to Set Them Free. Until then, you can follow us on at the females podcast on Instagram, share this episode with your work wives and listen to this sneak peek of next week's episode. Oh my gosh, I feel like this is exactly the right time. We're waking up to the fact that women's voices get sidelined. You know, we have this whole language for it now, which I think is just mind-blowing. Man-spreading and man-appropriating. I mean, there are all these experiences that women have had 
kind of to describe the experience of speaking well female. And a lot of women are going, you know what? I am sidelining my voice. Even I discovered that at the beginning of this journey that yeah, there were moments when I was shutting down because it's just not what we expect women to do to add their voice. We can amplify each other's voices. There's something we can do, you know, and I feel like the moment is absolutely now. And I wanted to seize that moment and get in there and help.